In so many ways, worship is about us convincing ourselves that that's true, right? That all truly we have is Christ. Worship is about reminding us of that and certainly convincing us that our profession is true. If you will, please take your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Um, hopefully, I've, I've challenged you at the beginning of the series to take some time and read through the book of Jonah. Um, I timed it recently. It, it took about eight minutes, a little bit over eight minutes to read through the book comfortably, like I wasn't speed reading or anything. Um, that's how short the book of Jonah is. Um, you can get through it in, in about eight to nine minutes fairly comfortably. And um, it, when you read the book as a whole, um, so much of the theme and the power behind the book um, shows up. And so I hope you take the time to do that. And you begin to see all sorts of wonderful themes that emerge from the book. Jonah chapter 1. I'd like to read the whole chapter today. And I want to focus on... Um, I just want to focus on spiritual formation, spiritual transformation, as we see very clearly here. It's a powerful um, portion of the book. As we're going to be focusing toward the end. Jonah chapter 1, we'll begin at verse number 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for, for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account did this, evil, this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. 
Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed, this is your word, and this is your people. Week in and week out, we come, not necessarily to hear from man, but to hear from you, to have our hearts challenged and loved and comforted by the singing, the reading of confession, the wonderful hymns, and the message behind them, but also to receive instruction in your word that we might daily and weekly, and monthly, and yearly be transformed by the power of the gospel, the gospel that has the power to change us thoroughly and completely. So the prayer today, O Lord, is that you might come and meet with your people. We know that you have promised your presence, but Lord, we so often don't see it. We don't realize that it's there, and what a dangerous thing it is. And so, Father, come, please, give us a sign, as you've already done, of your deep presence among your people. Bless us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're at a portion of the book of Jonah, a very pivotal portion of the book of Jonah, where we begin to see some of the transformational change that God has for his people specifically toward the end of Jonah chapter 1, in bringing the sailors to himself. Now, up to this point in the book of Jonah, we have enough information to see the arc of the story. Jonah 1, at the very beginning, began with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, God revealing his will to Jonah plainly, as he always does, by the way. Anytime I hear people say that they don't know what the will of the Lord is, I often ask them, well, what aspect of God's will are you searching for? If you're searching for the aspect of God's will that's hidden off and walled off from you, of course God doesn't have you to know that. But there's plenty in God's will, uh, plenty in God's word for you to know already. You know God's will for your life is for you to read his word. And God's will for his life is for you to serve him. And you know that God's will for your life is for you to be holy today. God's will for your life is to abstain from sexual sin. God's will for your life is to pursue righteousness and pray and come to church and serve others. You have plenty of God's will to know. 
Nothing is walled off and hidden from you. Husbands, God's will for your life is to serve your family and love your wife well and teach your children the word of God. Wives, your will, God's will for your life is to love your husband and to serve your children. No one in here should be ignorant of the will of God because it's plainly given. In the same way, at the beginning of the book of Jonah, Jonah was not ignorant regarding the word of the Lord for his life. That wasn't Jonah's problem. The problem that Jonah had was that he didn't want to accept God's will for his life. He didn't want to live in light of God's will for your life. Let me say this as well. That's our problem as well. No one in here is ignorant of God's will for your life. That's not the issue that we struggle with. The issue that we struggle with is, are we going to accept God's will for our life and live in light of it? Well, the answer for Jonah was no. And what do we see Jonah doing as a result? We see Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Because that's what happens when we don't want to submit to the will of Yahweh, submit to the will of Jesus. What do we end up doing? We end up fleeing. We end up running in some way, shape, or form. And what happens as a result of our running? That's what we looked at last week. What happened as a, as a result of our running away from the will of the Lord is we become spiritually indifferent. And we looked at all the ways Jonah became spiritually indifferent, right? We saw that because Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord, ran from the will of the Lord, what he knew God had called him to do, we saw Jonah first and foremost becoming morally weak. Jonah not accepting the responsibility of repentance, true repentance before the Lord. He saw the storm coming. He knew that the storm was for him, that he might repent. And what does he do? He went down into the boat and ran away from the Lord. Instead of dealing with the sin in his life, he ran from it. There's a book that um, me and Josh Henry have been reading called Man Up. And in the book, um, the author uses a word uh, known as Malachia. And the word Malachia has to do with moral weakness. Moral weakness, and, and one of the things that Malachia describes is a soldier in the heat of battle who knows he's supposed to fight, knows that he's supposed to stand up in the heat of the battle. Instead of doing that, he runs away. He runs away because he doesn't want to face the fight that's before him. That's Jonah. In the moment when Jonah is supposed to stand up and accept the consequences of his sin and plead for the grace and mercy of God that God wants to lavish on him, by the way, because he's the gracious and compassionate God, instead of doing that, what does Jonah do? He goes in the bottom of the ship and he falls asleep. Moral weakness. Not only that, but we saw spiritual indifference. How even in the midst of this storm, when these pagan sailors are crying out, crying out to something, for something, to something. Of course, what they were crying out to was not real. It wasn't there. But Jonah, in the heat of this, uh, this storm that came for him, is not crying out to God. He's completely and spiritually indifferent. And then what happens after that? Not only do we see his moral weakness, his spiritual indifference manifested in the fact that he was completely uh, spiritually inactive. And the third thing we saw was that Jonah began to be a rank hypocrite, that he professed faith in Yahweh. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. I fear him, the God of heaven, who made heaven and earth, who rules over heaven and earth. 
Jonah says. That God, he says, he fears. And what happens? He produces himself or he manifests himself as a big hypocrite because even though he professes faith in this God, his lifestyle is completely different and wayward from the God he professes. And then finally, what we saw last week that's so important is this, that our sin, our sin before the Lord is never a private sin. And we, heart, we made sure, right, I made sure you all understood this, that any sin that we have creates spiritual indifference in our life that impacts those around us, even though we don't materially do anything to the people around us. Jo Jonah never harmed the sailors. He never physically harmed them. He never physically harmed the people in Nineveh. But because of his spiritual indifference, it had a material impact on everyone around him. That's the arc of the story up to this point. Now, all of that is very heavy because they, that lays bare the soul, not just of Jonah, but often of ourselves, how we become spiritually indifferent. And so today what I want to do is I want to show the grace of God, even in the midst of Jonah's spiritual indifference, even though Jonah has completely abdicated his responsibility to be a Yahweh follower, what does God do? God allows him to come in contact with a group of sailors that God uses, Yahweh uses, to show Jonah how to be a Yahweh follower. Notice with me in Jonah chapter 1 and verse number 9. Jonah gives his profession. He said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And last week I mentioned that that was not true. He didn't believe that. He might have said that, but he didn't believe that. And so what does God do in his infinite wisdom because he's gracious and compassionate? God says, okay, if that's what you believe, I'm going to show you what that looks like, and I'm going to use these sailors to do it. Because here's the irony, and I, you know, every Sunday I give you something that I find to be very ironic about the book of Jonah. And and if you read through the book of Jonah, you'll find this to be the case. The irony of the book of Jonah up to this point is this. Jonah is fleeing from God's will to go to the pagans. And what does he do? He goes to pagan sailors to flee away from the presence of the Lord. And what does the Lord do in return? He uses these pagan sailors to show Jonah what it's like to be a Yahweh follower. Isn't that incredible? That's how God works. Even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the midst of our rebellion, he still places examples before us of what true righteousness and holiness looks like. And the irony of all of that is Jonah doesn't think that's possible. Jonah doesn't think he can learn anything from these pagans. And here is Yahweh intently using them to show him what true profession in faith looks like. Now, how does God do it? I want to show us three things very briefly. I want us to notice three words in this passage to show how God demonstrates to Jonah what true profession of faith, what it truly means to be a Christian, what it truly means to follow Yahweh, and what that means. He demonstrates this, and we see it in three words. First, the first word is the word Lord. The second word is the word fear. And the third word is the word hurl. Lord, fear, and hurl. 
And by the way, let me say this too. When, if, when, if you have time this week, spend some time studying those three concepts in the Old Testament. Because they're a powerful concept, especially the concept of Yahweh versus the concept of Elohim, the use of various names of God in the Old Testament. It's a fascinating study. But let's begin with the word Lord. How, how does the word Lord show us how God used these sailors as an example of what it means to be a true Lord follower to, to Jonah? Okay, let's begin with this. Look at verse number five and verse number six. When this big storm comes, the sailors are crying out, the Bible says, to their God, small g, small g, O-D, their God. They're crying out to their God. Then in verse number six, they come to Jonah and they say, Jonah, arise and call out to your God, and perhaps your God will give, you, give a thought to you that we might not perish. So these are pagan followers, and they're saying, crying out to God. Go and cry out to your God. But notice, after Jonah's profession in verse number 9, something miraculous happens. They go from crying out to God, G-O-D, to crying out to who? Lord. Lord. They go from crying out to Elohim to crying out to Yahweh. Now, to you and I, that's not anything major. We look at that change. We look at that profound change, and, they, and we say, okay, that's probably just a matter of semantics. I assure you it is not. You know what's interesting? In our day, we're used to people changing faith. You know, we're used to seeing people go from Protestant to maybe Catholic, or from Catholic to something else, or people changing their alliances and allegiances all the time. We're used to that. But in the ancient Near East, they were not used to that. And the reason why they were not used to that, I would say, is they had a more advanced and a more sophisticated understanding of spirituality and faith than we have in our time. Because they understood this. That change was not a light change. They understood what had to happen, profoundly had to happen, in order for that change to come. You see, in their day, in Jonah's day, when Jonah's reader read this, they were absolutely shocked. Because people didn't just change gods, not unless they were conquered, not unless they were forced to. This was a monumental change that happened without them being conquered, without them being subjugated in any way. This was a powerful movement of God's spirit, and they were absolutely shocked. Because to go from one God, from believing in one God, from, from living a life totally committed to one God, to going now to another God, to Yahweh, man, they had to give up everything. They had to give up their family. In many cases, they would have had to give up their profession. In many cases, they would have had to give up their friends, their way of life. Because in Jonah's day, to be a Yahweh follower was all-encompassing. In fact, I love how one commentator put it. One commentator said it like this. Human identity factors were inextricably linked to what you worshipped. What you are and what you worship were just two sides of the same coin. It was the most fundamental layer of your identity. Put that down somewhere. That expression, 
that it was the most fundamental layer of your identity. Hear me today. What it means to be a Yahweh follower isn't that you and I, you know, we live our lives and then on Sunday we come to church. Like we know this, right? To be a Yahweh follower is all-encompassing. It changes every aspect of you. Let me give you something, a, a bit of an analogy so you understand what I'm saying. When I came to the United States, I went to Florida, and I stayed in Florida for about six years. And I thought Florida was the South. You know, I, I live in the South. I live in Florida. Let me explain to you something. Florida is not the South. It is not. In fact, the further South you go in the United States, the more North it actually is, right? Florida is not the South. I got to know the South when I moved to Mississippi. Now, Mississippi is the South, right? That's where you get that beautiful Southern draw, right? It, seriously, like when I went to Mississippi, everyone had that beautiful Southern draw. When I went to Mississippi, I learned about seersucker suits, right? When I went to Mississippi, I learned you don't plan anything on a Saturday, especially during college football season, because no one will show up. And when I went to Mississippi, I realized that when, you, when somebody invited you to dinner and you sat down, you did not take a bite to eat until the host sat down and took a bite to eat, right? I learned all of these things about being in the South, the music, your allegiances, what you believe. There was something to being Southern when I went to Mississippi. Unlike I experienced nowhere else up to that point. Of course, this is true of Alabama and other areas as well. But here's the point that I'm trying to make. When it comes to being in the South, we understand there's such a thing as Southern living. What surprised me was that the people I met in the South did not apply that to their faith. Do you realize that as a Christian, there's a particular way you should talk? And as a Christian, there are particular norms that you're called to hold. There's a particular way that you should dress. There's a particular way that you should carry yourself. And look, if you say that, if you say something like that in our time, that sounds legalistic, Pastor. You're taking it too far now, Pastor. No, I'm not. Because that category exists in the south, up north, if you go to New York, why do you think wherever you travel in a particular geographic area, everyone kind of looks the same, kind of sounds the same, kind of acts the same? Because everybody understands that wherever you are culturally, you're changed by what is around you. The people reading this passage would have known that Yahweh following demands the same thing. That this shift was a cataclysmic shift in their identity. And this, this was meant to actually shame the people of God. Because the people of God at that time, during the time of Jonah, claimed to be Yahweh followers. But their identity wasn't in Yahweh. Their identity was being Jewish and being Hebrew. In fact, the answer that, um, the answer, notice with me in verse uh, number 8. When they said to Jonah, and, and by the way, the sailors understood this. When they said to Jonah, tell us on what account this evil has come upon us. Notice the questions that they asked him. 
all of these questions are questions of identity. Why? Because these questions were wrapped up in what it means to serve a God. So they asked Jonah, what is your occupation? Because depending on what he did, showed, showed them what God he served. Where do you come from? Because they know whatever he says, that's the God you serve. What is your country and what of, what of your people? And he responds to them, I am a Hebrew. Notice he didn't say, I'm an Israelite. Do you know why he didn't say, I'm an Israelite, I'm a Hebrew? Because to be an Israelite was a term that was exclusive to the people of Israel. That included all of their practices. That can included all of their norms. Now, to be a Hebrew, they told everybody outside of Israel, okay, we're Hebrews, right? We're, we're just Hebrews. We're, we're the people of Yahweh. But inside, they were Israelites, meaning uh, there were particular culture and norms that even at that time, he felt were outside of the capabilities of these uh, pagans to even understand. But the point is that when you think about being a Yahweh follower, a follower of the Lord, this is an all-encompassing reality. And there's no part of your life that should be separated or walled off from being a Yahweh follower. So that's the first thing. And this was incredibly convicting to those that were reading it because at that time in Israel, and certainly of Jonah, he wasn't a Yahweh follower. He wasn't a Lord follower. Not in every aspect. He might have professed it, but he certainly didn't live it. Now notice the second one. This word fear. And again, notice the theme of fear. The theme of fear comes up a great deal in the book of Jonah. But again, go back to verse number 4, 5, and 6. In verses 4, four 5, and 6, we see again the storm comes. And it says in verse number 5, the mariners were afraid. And then later on, it says that the mariners were, were greatly afraid. And they began to hurl all of these things off into the, in, into the sea. And then again, if you drop down to verse if you drop down uh, to verse number 9, after Jonah's profession, in verse number 10, it says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? I want, the, I want you to notice the fear aspect of these sailors. Right? They were afraid. And then contrast that with the fear at the end. When it said in verse number 16, Then the men, the same sailors, feared the Lord exceedingly. Those are two types of fear, right? Those are two types of fear mentioned in the Bible. And I want us to show us, I want to show us very briefly that fear has two aspects of it, the root and the object. In verse number five, six, four, five, and six, the root of their fear was their sinful inclination. That was the root of their fear. The fear that's mentioned in verse four and 10 is the fear that they directly experience as a result of their sin. Because of sinful consequences, because of, of the fact that they were being um, pressured in a way that they had never been pressured before. This is the fear of consequences, the fear of getting hurt, the fear of death, the fear of, of the unknown. All of this, the root of all of this was their sin. And the object, notice the object of that same fear. So the root is their sinfulness, but the object of that fear was the storm. The storm that was raging around them. They were deathly afraid of the storm that raged around them. But flip that now and notice the root 
and the object of the fear in verse number 16. It was no longer their sin, no longer as a result of their sinful desire to escape the consequences, no longer the root of their sinful uh, notion of what it means to be human, but the root now becomes the grace of God. The grace of God comes, they hear the perfection of the people around them, and they begin to deeply fear Yahweh, and now the object becomes Yahweh. This kind of fear is immortalized in the song Amazing Grace, where John Newton writes this, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." What is he talking about there? He's talking about how grace teaches our hearts to fear the Lord. That's why grace is there, to give our heart a proper reverential fear. But at the same time, it's grace that relieves that fear in the gospel. That's what they experienced here. They went from fearing the consequences, they went from fearing the storm, and because of the grace of Yahweh, now they become fears, uh, those that fear the Lord. And this is powerful. This is powerful for this reason. The Lord uses these sailors to show Jonah how to truly fear Yahweh. Again, I point you back to verse number 9 that's so central to this passage. One of the things that Jonah said was that I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord. I worship the Lord. I serve the Lord. Jonah doesn't believe that. But notice how Jonah's fear, his, his audible uh, expression of fear in Yahweh didn't match his life. But yet these sailors, their audible fear of Yahweh actually was demonstrated in their life. And they actually went about the task of truly worshiping the Lord. Our task as, as Yahweh followers, as followers of Christ, is this. That if we are going to tell the world, if we're going to tell one another we fear the Lord, it has to show up in action. It has to show up in an action that demonstrates the true fear of the Lord in our life, a pursuit of righteousness and holiness before the Lord. And by the way, we see this dynamic all the time. I give you one quick example, Isaiah 6. Isaiah went into the temple, and Isaiah is fearing the fact that King Uzziah has died. And he has a sinful fear, right? That fear of man, a fear of what the Assyrians will do. And what happens as a result? Yahweh shows up in all his glory. And his fear of the consequences of, of uh, Uzziah dying and the Assyrians coming were all done away with because Yahweh showed up in the temple and taught his heart to fear the true and living God and rest completely in that. That's what it means to go from fear, sinful fear, to righteous fear. Now, real quick, let's examine this word hurl. Hurl. Now, the word hurl starts in verse number four. It starts with the action of Yahweh, right? Yahweh comes and he hurls this great storm. Now, last week we mentioned that when Yahweh hurled this great storm, this was an act of God's grace. This wasn't an act of judgment. Yahweh didn't hurl this storm to harm Jonah. Yahweh hurled this storm to heal Jonah. And so, Right off the bat, you see Yahweh hurling the storm. And what is the response of that? Well, the response of the mariners, they responded in fear. And if you look at verse number five, it said that they hurled their cargo. Notice all the ways, notice all the ways they respond to Yahweh's hurling. First of all, they hurled the cargo over, over the ship. 
Second of all, right, sinful, fearful response. Then in verse number seven, they cast lots. They cast lots, another form of hurling. Then eventually they hurled Jonah over the ship. All of these are actions that were born out of fear and concern, right? This is what happens when you are not a Yahweh follower. When you are not a follower of Christ, what happens? You do perform actions, but these actions are ineffectual. But what happens when you and I become true Yahweh followers? For the sake of time, just look at verse number 16. And this is so powerful. As a result of seeing the power of of Yahweh, as a result of seeing the power of the Lord, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and notice what they did. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, what do those things indicate? Sacrifice and vows. Those things are the essence of the Christian faith. The essence of the Christian faith is that we are a people who make sacrifices and people who make vows. Because what it means to be a Christian is bound up in those two realities, to make sacrifices and vows. That's what we do. That's the essence of our, of our religion. We make sacrifices of our money. We make sacrifices of our time. We make sacrifices of ourselves. We make vows to our church. We make vows to one another. That's what it means, right? Vows are the externalization of a commitment we make in our hearts. That's what a vow is. That's what a sacrifice is. This recently came home to me in, in I think, a funny and profound way. I, I was looking for something, and I came across a news story of a new viral trend. And some of you might see it, might have seen it. The new viral trend is for young men to, to call their girlfriend's wife accidentally in front of them. And so it'd be a young man on the phone, and he's talking to a friend. His friend's like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just here at my wife which is actually his girlfriend, not his actual wife. And immediately, you could see the young girl start to smile, like, ooh, you know? And she leans over, and she's like, am am I your wife? And he's like, yeah, yeah, baby, you're my wife. And just she lit up. She lit up. And I said, wow, that's interesting to me, right? And here's why that's interesting to me. We live in an age today where young people are being told, you don't have to get married. You don't have to make vows to one another, right? You can just live together. That's okay. You don't need to show that you love uh, the other person by getting married. Marriage is an old institution. You don't really need it. If that is the case, then why universally all of these young ladies melted when their, uh, when their boyfriend told, called them their wife over the phone? Why did they melt like that? Here's why they melted like that. Because you and I know, in fact, those young ladies know that there is a profound difference between being a girlfriend and being a wife. And the difference is that taking on a wife requires sacrifice and vows. That the institution of marriage is about sacrifice and about vows. And just saying that I am your girlfriend is not enough. You need to make that commitment. And the same thing is true that God is showing the people of Israel. You made sacrifices and vows, and you are not keeping them. Jonah made sacrifices and vows to Yahweh, and he's not keeping them. In fact, he's running away from them. Israel at this time made sacrifices and vows, and they're not keeping them. They're running away from them. 
In the same way, God calls each and every one of us to make sacrifices and vows to him. And he's telling us, are you going to keep them? Are you going to be faithful to these sacrifices and these vows that you have made? Now, what is the big takeaway here? Here's the big takeaway, and it's, it's simple. It's this. Christians are called by God's grace to be an example of how to love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, and soul. That's our task here on earth. That's why when you became a believer, God didn't immediately take you into heaven. You were left here for the purpose to evidence God's mercy and grace to the world. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, Pastor, I'm profoundly broken, and I don't often do that well. Well, I have some good news for you. I'd like to leave you with some good news, and here's the good news that I want to leave for, for, for you. Even though at times we can be awful examples of the mercy and grace that God has left us to pursue in the world, even though we might be awful examples of believers the way God has called us to do, we, because of our union with Christ, are united to the perfect example of what it means to follow the Lord. And it's by virtue of that union, you and I are able, even in the midst of our brokenness, even though we don't do it perfectly, as Jonah didn't do it perfectly, you know what's interesting to me? What was Jonah tasked to do at the beginning of Jonah? To go to the pagans, preach God's word for them, and bring them to Yahweh, right? What happens at the end of Jonah? Jonah goes to the sailors, preaches Yahweh, and the sailors get saved. Do you see that even in Jonah's brokenness and disobedience, he still accomplishes the purpose of the Lord. Why? Because God is sovereign, and he's gracious and compassionate. And even though you and I often do not do what he has called us to do, even though we do it sloppily, even though at times we do it without any emotion or affection or care, God still takes us as his imperfect people and brings about a great harvest of righteousness, and brings about great good in spite of our sin, in spite of our brokenness, and in spite of our poor examples. That's grace. That's the power of grace, and we see it evident in the life of Jonah, and, and I hope to show you that even more throughout this passage. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that we could see that even though Jonah was an awful, awful example of righteousness and purity and holiness, Yet still, we see your grace that you used him to minister to these sailors, again imperfectly, again hypocritically. Because of his union and commitment to you, because of the vows you made to him and the commitment you made to be his God, you refused to let him go. And Lord, I'm so thankful for that, that even though at times we are not good examples of what it means to be Yahweh followers, Christ followers, even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the midst of our profound folly, you pursue us and you bring great good about. Thank you for being the gracious and compassionate God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.